All right, well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Joel chapter 1 as we continue in this new sermon series through the book of Joel. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in a Blue Pew Bible, and you can find Joel 1 on 760. And again, if you did bring your own Bible, do not be ashamed to go to the table of contents. It could be a tricky one to, to find tucked there in the Old Testament. But uh, to start out, I want to talk about a multimedia organization called the Bible Project. And the Bible Project's mission is to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Uh, many of you might be familiar with the Bible Project. It's now grown to the point where there are all kinds of platforms and podcasts associated with it. But uh, the Bible Project first became widely known, at least first came on my radar, through a series of short videos for every book of the Bible that would give this overview of that book, the themes of that book, and then show how that book uh, leads to and points to Jesus Christ. And so it's a voiceover of a kind of animated video sketch. Really engaging videos, visibly sharp, uh, biblically rich and yet concise, which is hard to do. And uh, you're like, yeah, it is hard for you to do that, uh, to talk concisely with biblically rich content. But these videos accomplish it. And uh, I, I highly recommend it, even if, like, if you've been engaged with the Bible for a long time or you're just starting to kind of get reacquainted with the Bible. What are these books of the Bible? What do they mean? Uh, Bible Project. Uh, you can go on YouTube or their website and uh, check it out. But uh, the book of Joel, I, I think I have a still shot at the end of the video of the book of Joel to put up there. And so that kind of gives a little bit uh, of a picture kind of throughout the, I don't know, six to eight to nine minutes. It kind of sketches out and writes out these themes. And, um, and the, the founder of the Bible Project, or one of them, is this guy named Tim Mackey. And he is the primary voice in these videos. I think he's the writer for them as well. And Tim is a self-proclaimed Bible nerd. And he is, uh, I think, a, this kind of brilliant mind who understands the depths of doctrine and biblical theology and yet can articulate those, that depth in easy-to-understand, uh, short, concise ways. And um, I heard Tim give a talk recently that resonated with me um, when he shared that uh, he had a pretty transformative thing happen to him just a year and a half ago, you know, well after he's really grown this company. And uh, I want to share a portion of what he said. He said, over my lifetime, I have had the opportunity to develop a toolkit of studying, teaching, thinking, and speaking about the Word of God. But it recently occurred to me that I have mostly invested in one part of my body and mind's way of engaging my faith and learning how to hear what God is saying, and that is through the text and words and ideas and through my mind. And that's obviously not a bad thing, but there is a whole realm of experience that is available in the journey of following Jesus that I just don't know much about. He would go on to say that I've developed, again, a set of habits that have primarily been focused on reading and thinking about words on a page, but I began to wonder, is this all just a set of ideas? Is there anything more? And Mackey would go on to suggest in this talk that, you know, and he admitted perhaps this is a spiritual midlife crisis for him, uh, but, but what transformed him was this recapturing and awareness of the experiential presence of God. The experiential presence of God by his spirit and not just the knowledge of God by his word. And so when you, when you think about, when you hear about the presence of God, um, there is a grand canyon of a difference between knowing about God's presence, as you read it on a page, 
and experiencing God's presence by his spirit. And those are not opposed to each other. It's not, it's one or the other. It's very much a both and. They are two sides of the same coin. And the reason, I think, why Tim's talk um, resonated with me is that I, too, love to read. And I love to think. And I love to process and, and learn and grow and how to speak and write about the words of God and doctrine and theology. And that is a good thing, a needed thing. But I could feel the spirit probing in my heart where I ask myself a question. Is there an aspect of this journey of following Christ that I have not fully explored? That I am not fully aware of what's available to me? And so I turn that question now to you. Are you aware of God's experiential presence in your life? Do you uh, know that it is available to those who believe in and been redeemed by Jesus Christ? This day-by-day, moment-by-moment, experiential presence. So as I mentioned last week, we began this, what's going to be a six-week series, preaching through the book of Joel. Joel is a short book. It is a prophetic book in the Old Testament. Um, In total, there are 17 prophetic books in the Bible. Uh, It often gets broken down by five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. And they are called major and minor not based upon importance, but merely based on their length. So you have Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations that are the major prophetic books. And then there are 12 minor prophets, short books. And among them is this three-chapter book of Joel. And prophetic books in the Bible consist of both warnings and promises And if you were to read through them, you would find that some of the darkest warnings for those who rebel against God or in the prophets, things that can kind of be tough to read, and then they're right alongside some of the brightest promises for the future are also in these same books. And so big picture, I think having this framework will help us us throughout this series. Uh, The the, the prophetic books have kind of three movements in them that they have in common that kind of tie them together. And I'm going to have them up on the screen. Um, Number one is that the prophetic books um, expose sin. And they call people to repentance for, for an immoral lifestyle. And then in the prophetic books, number two, they warn of coming judgment. And that's often where in our kind of modern sensibilities we start to get a little, you know, it can be a little strange reading that. It can feel a little, we can feel a certain way. And then number three, the promise of a Messiah to redeem and restore. So you find yourself in the prophetic books, you're going to see these, these themes of these three movements kind of weave in and out of these books. And um, again, I want to you know, keep banging the same drum, but prophetic books are gritty. They're weighty. They can be agonizing at times. And, and just to be honest, they can be a tough read. Uh, in fact, there have been people on staff and members who know that we're preaching through Joel, so they've read ahead in Joel. And I'll get a text like, um, what are you going to do with this book? And, or, or, or they'll put the Christian language on that, like praying for you, pastor, all right, as you try to navigate this book of Joel. But one of the reasons why I think they are so vital for us is because when you consider and live life in a fallen world, life is gritty, And life is weighty, and life can be agonizing at times. And so we would do well to see how the Holy Spirit inspired the inerrant word and how it guides us in these moments to navigate warnings and promises. 
And so last week we saw the opening verses where Joel described the destructive invasion of an army of locusts, a historical event that happened in Israel that had decimated the land. And so Joel began with a call to lament. The, The exhortation to the people of God was to lament. Before you do anything else, lament, right? Not just allow for lament, crying out to God, but a call for it. Because as we saw, lament does something in us. Uh, God uses it to empower us from going, uh, from asking the question, what is wrong, God, to what is true about God? That's what lament empowers us to do, to move from what is wrong to what is true. And if we never acknowledge in our life what is wrong, then we will never search for what is true. For even Jesus said, it's not the healthy that go to a doctor, it's the sick And I came to seek and save the lost because it's only those who acknowledge that things are not okay in order to search for help. So that was last week. Now this week we're going to see the back half of chapter 1. We're going to pick it up at verse 13. And we're going to see that call to lament again and then see where this text invites us to experience the presence of God. So verse 13, I'll read it to the end. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. All right, my hope for us this morning is to move us from knowing about God's presence to stirring our collective desire to experience God's presence. To know that God has made himself available to us in this way, especially in times of distress and hardship. Whether you're going through a time of distress or hardship now or knowing, as we all do, that eventually we will. And in those moments, God's greatest gift to us is himself. And so we're going to see three things this passage tells us, starting with number one. And it's the title of the sermon. He is the God who is there. He is the God who is there. So verse 13 is a continuation of last week, calling various groups of people to lament. He made his way through about three to four groups last week. And here he speaks directly to the priests to lament. And it's a pretty simple reason that we can understand. Uh, They're called to lament because the land has been stripped of its resources by this locust invasion. Which means there's no grain and there's no grapes to do the grain offerings and the drink offerings in the temple. The temple was the center of community life, the place in which the people of God gathered to worship. And a vital part of that is when the priests um, offered up various offerings on the altar. And two are mentioned here. The grain offering, which was offered up to thank 
the Lord for his mercy in supplying their needs. And then a drink offering was a sign of God's victory in entering into Sabbath rest, that God then, like he does now, wanted rhythms in your life that puts your eyes on him to thank him for supplying your needs, to thank him for his victory that has allowed you to enter into a time of spiritual rest. But now, there's no offerings. Because there's no crops. They are withheld from the people of God. They are now withheld from this experience in the temple. Because an invasion of locusts has decimated the land. And so then, in verse 14, Joel calls them to devote themselves to a fast. He said, there's no food out there, so devote yourself to a fast. So think about this with me. Um, It's only a couple times in the Old Testament that God calls his people to fast, collectively as a group. Most of the time in the Old Testament, he's calling his people to a feast, And there are various feasts throughout the year that they are supposed to engage in annually, these feasts upon the Lord. But now they're called to fast. Why? Again, on one hand, because they're forced to. They don't really have a choice here. But then in another way, in the midst of that, God is showing them the power available to them in corporate lament. Lamenting as a group. That God will meet them in a unique, powerful way because in the times of distress, we need to hear it most that our God is the God who is there. Uh, I heard a pastor say once, I wish I remember who it was, I would, I would say the name, but I can't remember where I first heard it, but I've never forgotten what he said. When he was talking about how it's kind of interesting when you think about it, that people are prone to want to gather together even in times that are completely opposite on the emotional spectrum. And so the example he uses was a wedding and a funeral. One is a celebration, and loved ones love to gather together to celebrate a wedding. The other is a solemn assembly. Loved ones gathered together at a funeral to mourn. Two ends of the spiritual or emotional spectrum, and yet there's an inner desire in all of us that when we're feeling those things, we want to be with others. And the pastor said, and went on to say, you know, we would all rather go to a wedding, but you can learn more at a funeral. When it comes to what shapes our lives and how we live our lives, weddings may be more fun, but funerals are more important. Because... When you're in a collective time of mourning together, we are reminded of our mortality, that none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. We reflect on, and kind of forced to reflect on, what's most important in life? You learn to not sweat the small stuff and hold these stupid grudges against people, but to keep all things in perspective. And then finally, when you go and reflect at a funeral, there's an urgency in you to not waste your life. You got one life. Don't waste it. But we don't go to funerals because we choose to. No one's looking at their calendar going, where can I fit in a funeral this week? We go to funerals because we have to. And yet, even in the midst of that forced attendance, like a, like a forced fast in Israel, we can experience something with God in the midst of loss that can actually give us life. Can I say that again? We can experience something in the midst of loss that will actually give us life. Joel just called the whole nation to fast 
because he is the God who is there. And I get that phrase, the God who is there, from a man named Francis Schaeffer. Some of you might be familiar with him in his books. Uh, he wrote a book with that title, The God Who Is There, in the late 1960s. And Schaefer was a pastor and theologian who created and operated a fellowship in Switzerland, which was kind of like a retreat center, but also a seminary. It was kind of this hybrid place where people from all walks of life would come and stay for various durations of time. Believers, non-believers, seekers, skeptics. And when people would come to profess Christ at that fellowship, Schaefer would sit them down and ask them the same question. And I think we're going to have the question up on the screen. He said, do you believe that God exists and that he is a personal God, and that Jesus Christ is God, remembering that we are not talking of the word or idea God, but of the infinite, personal God who is there. Meaning, are you not just giving an intellectual assent to the set of ideas of God and creator and sin and salvation, But do you know that what is made available to you now is a relationship with the God who is there? Day by day, moment by moment, that this is your new reality available to you. And that is actually more real than any reality you experience in this world. It's more real than the things you can see and feel and touch in our limited embodied dimensions. But your soul can be in the presence of God. And he is there in the wedding celebratory moments of your life. And he is there in the funeral grieving moments of your life. And not only can you experience that and walk in that, but when you gather with other believers, his presence is in the midst of you all. My question for us and for me at Grace Church, guys, is this too weird for us? Is this a little too weird for us? To not avail ourselves to this truth in his word. His presence of God, not just words on a page, but your experience of his spirit. That his presence is not just something that you might get in the future when you die. It's available for us now. And in our hyperproductive society, before God calls you to do anything, he invites you to be with him. What a gift. And so my honest question is, what would it look like for you to exist in this world as if that was actually true? Don't you want that to be true? And for those of you who do live in this world with that active spiritual presence of God, I, I would imagine that you would say, I can't imagine life without that. That once you experience that, it's hard to ever try to walk in life without that. It'd be like telling you to breathe without oxygen or telling you to swim without water. And for those who perhaps have a bent like I do, you might think, you'd be prone to think, and I don't want to project my experience on you, but you might be prone to think, that sounds good. I I want that to be true. But life is so full. And where would I fit that in? I just don't really have time for that. Have you seen my schedule? Have you seen how busy our family is? Or you might respond in another way that that sounds nice, but okay, pastor, how do I do it? That's my response. How do I do it? Give me three ways to experience God. Tell me what to do, point by point. 
And the message for me and for you out of the book of Joel is that before God calls you to do anything, he invites you to be with him. Perhaps that's what Psalm 46 means when it says, be still and know that I am God. Maybe it actually means be still and experience that presence and know he is God, not just know about his presence, but experience it. He is the God who is there. And then we move to number two in this passage, and it gives us another reality and truth about God, that he is the God who listens. So not only is he the God who is there, but he is the God who listens. Isn't it possible to be somewhere, but not actually be listening? And not only is God there, but he listens. Twice in this passage, Joel exhorts the inhabitants of the land to cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord in the midst of this distress, that when we draw near to him in those times, as opposed to hiding from him or faking it and being like, I'm a good Christian, I'm just going to stiff upper lip, I'm going to get through this, uh, that that's not what God calls you to do in times of distress, but actually calls you to draw near and invites you to lament before him. Recall from last week, lament is praying in pain in a way that leads to trust. Lament is praying in pain in a way that leads to trust. But like, let's ask ourselves the question of this text. Why does God listen? He doesn't have to listen. Like, Why should God condescend himself to those whom he has created? He doesn't owe us that. He isn't obligated to listen to us. But thankfully, it aligns with his character of being a merciful and gracious God. Uh, one, one thing that makes me uh, reflect more on this is that the way how we in the public love it when a famous person chooses to interact with a normal person, right? A really famous person kind of allows himself, gives some time of day to, a, to one of us normal folk, all right? So it's a baseball playoffs. You, you sometimes see a video of an outfielder like Aaron Judge, and he's having a catch with a 10-year-old in the stands in between innings. And it's like a 42-second video put on Twitter with 10 million views, all right? Because Aaron Judge threw a ball to a 10-year-old. How awesome is he? All right? Or you hear that Taylor Swift went to someone's wedding reception and sang a song at their wedding. Can you believe it? Taylor Swift went to a normal wedding and sang a song just because she chose to. How, like, that is awesome. Or a politician will call an average citizen on the phone to congratulate them for something or to offer condolences, and it gets a lot of public attention. How great it is that they took the time out of their day to interact with us common folk. And I'm not knocking the attention it gets. I'm watching those videos, and I'm enjoying them for the most part. But if we do that and acknowledge that we enjoy that, how much more should we be blown away by the lived reality that the God of the universe listens. My goodness. He listens to those who cry out to him. And not only does he listen, but he delights to be in our presence. And so again, I'm just going to ask a series of questions that I'm asking myself this week. When you think of God, is that aspect of God in your mind? Is this your version of God? One who delights to commune with you. Who draws you near, not to get something from you, not to just ask something of you, but simply out of his mercy and grace to be with you. When you think of God, is that version of God in your mind? 
that we can experience him in his presence in a way that we can't experience anything else or anyone else in this world, meaning that when you experience God, it is a one of one. There's no duplicate, no alternative, and it's available to you at every single moment, especially in times of distress when he reveals himself to us knowing that we need him in the moments that we ask him why. When Israel cries out to God, when we cry out to God in distress, when we want to know why, Lord, why have the locusts come wave after wave to destroy the land? We're your people. Why? Lord, why are we navigating so much loss? Why is there so much grief that I'm experiencing I can't like spin out of? Lord, like, I'm, I'm your son, I'm your daughter. Why is there so much sorrow in my life? These moments, whether you are walking in them now or get to a place in the future where you will be, they require a thick view of God. A thick view and knowledge of God to endure those moments. That when you lose sight of him and in the midst of grief, a thin theology won't do. You'll be like a single piece of paper being blown in the wind on a windy day. But a thick view of God will endure when one of you know, any uh, limitless number of questions might emerge, but maybe like this question. God, did you send the locusts or did you just allow them to come? That's a thick question. When you suffer, what do you think about God in the midst of that suffering? It's a thick question. What role is he playing in those moments? It's interesting, I just don't think we would have had understood or grasped the book of Joel as a church community if we did this series in fall 2019. That in America, we're usually used to uh, individual suffering. But once March 2020 hit, we entered into this new realm of corporate lament and phrases like global pandemic and coronavirus and social distancing became commonplace for us. And so, for us, what we have experienced and maybe are still walking through in some ways, a thick theology is required when we ask, God, did you send the pandemic? Or did you just allow it to happen? And does it matter either way? Like, what difference does it make to say he caused it and sent it versus he merely permitted it? Because if God is sovereign, like we talk about all the time here, and nothing happens outside of his control, to say that he could not control that and he didn't want it to happen, but it happened anyway, that's a weak God that is not worthy of our worship. But to say that God sent it and enjoyed watching his people suffer through it, physically and economically and socially, that speaks of an evil God, also not a God worthy of worship. And so we got to dig deep in our own hearts, in our own minds, to know that there are times in Scripture that we know God sends calamity upon a people for always just reasons. It's not that he's enjoying it, like it's sick, kind of sick enjoyment out of him, but that people uh, in, uh, before a just God deserve some of the calamity that they got. That We can acknowledge that that happens in Scripture. Think about the ten plagues and Pharaoh and Egypt. But then there are cases in Joel where we're not explicitly told, did he send these locusts or did he allow it? And I think that's where much of our lives is the space that we're in today, that when suffering comes, when tragedy strikes, when abuse happens and goes overlooked for years and decades, 
when cancer diagnosed, phone call comes from the doctor, when hurricanes and earthquakes happen, God, did you send it or did you allow it? And I don't want to be overly simplistic, but a thick biblical theology, I think, lands us here. God does not cause all suffering, but he providentially uses all suffering to draw people to himself. That God is not the primary cause of all suffering, but he is sovereign over it and providentially uses all of it to draw people to himself. And the last three years have done much to change us as a society. I think some of the things we're aware of, probably other things we won't be aware of until long after we're gone, of how this really has impacted us as a society, as a church. But I do know that in the last three years, a lot of false gods have gotten exposed. A lot of false gods, especially we in America, have relied on for comfort, got exposed. They were laid bare like locusts decimating a land. Nothing left. But when we are drawn near to the God who is there and we cry out to the God who listens, our, quit, our questions can shift from, God, why did you do this? To, God, what do you want to teach me through this? When we can, make, when we can walk that bridge from, God, why did you do it? To, God, what do you want to teach me through it? And then not only that, but in times of communal distress, we are empowered by God to then help others. That the church should be the first to be willing to lament and cry out, but then also be on the front lines for helping those who are impacted most. Um, so N.T. Wright, he wrote a little book called God and the Pandemic. Uh, in late 2020, I think it came out. And he says that true followers of God not only receive comfort from God in times of distress, but, uh, but they are able to learn how to get their eyes off themselves. And he says that uh, here's what the church can and should be asking in these times. And there's three questions, and we're going to have them up on the screen. Um, who is that going to be at special risk when this happens? Number two, what can we do to help? And number three, who shall we send? That even in the midst of our lament, if we can say who around us is going to suffer most, what can we do? Who can we send? Because when we draw near to God, we represent his interests in this world, and we as the church can identify these things. He's the God who listens. And then we move to number three. This passage tells us that he is the God who restores. The first chapter of Joel, again, describes the extent of loss that Israel has experienced. And we find that as bad as the locust invasion was and is, did you notice that in these verses, he started adding things in? So last week was all about the locusts, but now we're talking about a drought and a fire at the same time. In verses 17 to 20, he talks about a severe drought, and then on the heels of that drought, a fire. Uh, for those who have lived in an area of our country or our world that goes through severe droughts, maybe you can resonate with some of these descriptions in ways that other of us cannot. But we can all understand conceptually how that when the land becomes very dry, it now becomes also vulnerable to dangerous wildfires. Uh, we see it in the western U.S. virtually every summer, um, how much damage a fire can do in the dry lands of California and Montana and Arizona. I read in 2020 alone, 4.4 million acres burned in California, 
with an estimated damage of $12.1 billion. One state, one year, that much damage. But Joel mentioned something briefly in chapter 1 that we need to bookmark because it's going to become a prominent theme starting next week. And it's in verse 15. He's discussing these calamities of natural disasters, but then verse 15, he says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. And we see Joel begin to weave in this connection from a local event that happened in the recent past to a cosmic event at the end of the age in the distant future, and that is the day of the Lord. And again, it will be a dominant theme the rest of the way. And in a poetic, descriptive, not as linear as we often want it kind of way, Joel is weaving in and out of the past and the present and into the future, not giving clear answers as to whether God sent it. But again, we see that every calamity should not be viewed as God's judgment, but it always should make us attentive to God's work and presence. God, in everything he does, is warning and promising at the same time. He is warning those who live their lives outside of his design. And he's promising to restore those who turn to him and call out to him in their distress. And where we see as we follow the biblical storyline from Joel is that centuries after this book was written, there'd be a man born in Bethlehem. And he would be raised in a small town of Nazareth. And he would come to the Jordan River when he was in his early 30s to begin a three-year ministry. And these words would begin his ministry according to the Gospel of Mark. He would say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Warning and promising. Because Jesus, in every act in his teaching would embody the warnings and the promises of God. The judgment due to those who will turn away from the Father and salvation to those who will draw near to the Father. And Jesus would say all these really strange things that people didn't know what to do with then. And I think in a lot of ways people don't know what to do with now. He would say things like this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does that mean? How does that make sense? It makes sense when we see that salvation can only come by a journey through the pathway of lament. That comfort will only come to those who mourn over brokenness and not just demand that everyone around them has to change, so things get better, but for those who mourn first and foremost over their own sin their own contribution, their own brokenness, and repent of that sin to receive forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can offer. Because Jesus' final act was to willingly die on a cross. A final act of judgment and salvation. Where he took our judgment for our salvation. Where he exchanged his perfection for our sin, where he exchanged his presence with the Father for abandonment by the Father 
on our behalf so that we could enter into his presence. And where we, by repentance of sin and faith in him, exchange our weeping for rejoicing, our mourning for comfort, our death for life. This is the God who restores. This is the God whom we are invited to not just read about, to not just think about, to not just hear about, but to dwell in his presence, for he is the God who is there. And so as we set to close, it fell afresh on me in preparing this sermon that the final act of Jesus on this earth was to die and rise again. But the final words of Jesus that he spoke to his disciples after rising from the dead and before he ascended into heaven is what we call the Great Commission. And when I think of the Great Commission, I think of the call to action. And we're going to have the, the passage up there on the screen, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Um, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So I get that. I hear that. Let's go, church. Make disciples of all nations. Tell me what I have to do. But that's not how he finishes. How does he finish? And I often leave this part out. And behold, I am with you always to the end of our age. Church, are you aware of God's presence in your life? Do you know that's available to you? Have you, like Tim Mackey of the Bible Project and, and myself at times, missed out on the whole realm of spiritual presence by his spirit made available to you? What would change in your life? What would change in the life of those around you, your family, if you embrace the truth that you can be still and know that he is God and he is with you always? Is this too weird for us? His presence is not a burden. Prayer is not a dry time of me having to talk and try and stay focused to tell God all I need. But rather, as Mackie put it, it is, quote, a surrendering of my entire being to the eternal now. Paradise now. He's the God who is there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word, this word that can be agonizing, at times confusing, and yet always reassuring, Father, because we know our lives are at times agonizing, and our lives are often confusing, and yet you are always reassuring. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, remove any barriers that we have put in place to experience your presence, that we would make our own hearts available to, to what you want to do in us and through us, Lord, that before you call us to do anything, you call us to be with you. And when we are with you, then we get the fuel and the clarity on what you want us to do, Lord. May it be true of this church that we increasingly rely on the word of God and care about doctrine and theology and ideas and but may it also be true that we care and look much to your experiential presence. That we would be still when you need us to be still. And remember who we are in you. 
Reveal yourself to us in a powerful way, Father. Let it be all for your glory and the good of your kingdom. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond in worship and prepare to take the Lord's Supper.